Checklists are ubiquitous today with our altogether too busy lifestyles. At the start of another new year, you might be making some checklists of your own. Most of us use checklists in very similar ways, namely to keep track of the priorities, responsibilities, and tasks that we intend to accomplish. Indeed, checklists can be very helpful memory aids. But have you considered that a checklist could be used for something more than just to track all of the busy tasks that you're trying to manage? How about a checklist for what you want to make space for in your life? What about a checklist for what you find pleasurable, satisfying, cathartic, or fulfilling? Our guest today says that checklists can not only help us better manage our overwhelm and stress, but indeed help us to change our lives for the better by remembering what is worth prioritizing in the first place. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Rosillo. Alexandra Franzen is the best-selling author of six books. She's a writing teacher, an entrepreneur, and the co-founder of Get It Done, a woman-owned company that helps clients create beautiful books in all genres. Her work has been featured across Newsweek, Time, Forbes, USA Today, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times, while her clients have won awards like the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work and the Pinnacle Award. She joins us today to discuss her book, The Checklist Book, Set Realistic Goals, Celebrate Tiny Wins, Reduce Stress and Overwhelm, and feel calmer every day. We recorded this conversation in June 2020 and thought it would be nice to share it with you today to inspire you to prioritize joy and fun and pleasure and play in your early new year. Alex, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start, Alex, with an excerpt from The Checklist Book. Too much to do, not enough hours in the day. Olivia was attending graduate school full-time, working towards her master's degree and earning straight A's in all of her classes. This program was incredibly rewarding and also incredibly expensive. She was understandably nervous about racking up student loan debt that she would never be able to repay. This anxiety crept around her neck hot and itchy, invading her dreams and often keeping her awake at night. To earn money, she had gotten a part-time job and was working as many hours as she could, but this still wasn't enough to cover the high cost of living in Boulder, Colorado. To reduce her expenses, she had found a unique living situation. She had her own room in a lovely house, totally free, but in exchange for doing yard work, dog walking, snow shoveling, and other various errands for the owner. It was great to save money on rent, but in between going to lectures at school and studying for exams, writing papers, working a job, and dealing with this housing work trade barter situation, and the lengthy commutes up and down the treacherous snowy mountain roads, Olivia had virtually zero free time. Her days were crammed from dawn until bedtime. And on top of all this, 
her heart had been trampled by a romantic relationship that had turned sour a few months ago. Grieving this breakup made handling all the rest of life even more difficult. Additional stress on top of stress. She wanted to excel at school and graduate with honors. She wanted to earn enough money to cover her expenses without strain. She wanted to stay connected with friends and family and not let these relationships wither due to her busy schedule. She also wanted time to take care of herself, time to practice yoga, time to meditate, time to cook, time to sleep. What a concept. Eventually, she also wanted to meet a wonderful person and fall in love, buy some land, plant a garden, start a family, and raise children together. Her dreams were not exactly unusual or extravagant. We're not talking about gold-plated toilets on a diamond-encrusted yacht. And yet, in this moment, sitting on my living room floor, everything for Olivia felt so hard to reach. Life was so busy, money was so tight, time was so limited, everything just felt so overwhelming. I could hear the pain in her voice, the spoken questions and the unspoken questions too. How will I care for a child if I can barely take care of myself? How will I get from here to where I want to be? How is it possible that I'm a smart, grown-up person, and yet I'm still struggling with the most basic things, like figuring out how to manage my time? I always have so much to do. I never have enough time for everything. I feel like I'm drowning, she finished, with tears gushing from her eyes. And so, here was Olivia's predicament, a familiar dilemma painfully relatable for me and for so many people. Too much to do, not enough hours in the day, competing priorities, overwhelm. New Year's Eve was just 48 hours away, but rather than feeling optimistic about the year ahead, Olivia already felt exhausted and anxious about everything that needed to get done. And the year hadn't even begun. You've got a lot on your plate, I said, it's totally understandable that you feel overwhelmed. I hate seeing my younger sister or anyone in pain. I wish I could wave a magic wand and instantly erase all of my sister's worries and struggles. I couldn't offer a magic wand, but I could offer something else, something to hopefully create a little more calm amidst all the mental chaos. Do you want to try something with me? I asked her. What? She sniffled. Let's make a checklist. So here we are. You just read an amazing excerpt from us in which you are in your book um, telling us the story of your sister, Olivia, who was feeling overwhelmed and burned out and like she was dreading a whole new year even before it started. And so I'm curious about your relationship to overwhelm and tying that idea, like your relationship to like overwhelm and that kind of like doing too much anxiety, how that brought this book, uh, which is called The Checklist Book, into the world. What's the story behind this book and, and how did it come by way of your experience with overwhelm? Yeah, great question. Well, I think, you know, I'm one of those people who I have 
always, ever since I was even a little kid, I've always felt like I have too much to do. I don't have enough time. And that feeling has sort of haunted me my whole life, even to this day. And, you know, I think sometimes like as writers or artists or entrepreneurs, we sort of create the things that we need the most. (laughs) Like you create the medicine that you yourself need. Um, And that's been, I mean, that was absolutely the case with writing the checklist book. I've always been a, I've been a lifelong lover of checklists because I need them, you know, because I'm one of those people who can become overwhelmed very easily. And I've found that for me, making a simple one page, clean, organized checklist is like, it really feels like like a balm for my spirit. (laughs) It sort of allows Mm. me to face the day a little more confidently and feeling like, you know, okay, well, I don't have the answers to everything, but at least I know the next 10 things that are happening in my life and it's on a list. So yeah, I mean, much like my sister Olivia in that little story I just shared, I too, you know, deal with that feeling of having so many ambitions and so many goals and wanting to have a full life and also a balanced life and, and struggling to make it all work. Um, okay. So I have one funny thing to share. So the, a couple yeah. of days ago, I was curious because I, I, you know, I still have that feeling of like, I never quite have enough time for everything I want to do. So I did this little experiment where I wrote down like what my ideal day would look like. Like I would spend one hour doing yoga and I would spend five hours working with clients and I would spend one hour walking my dog Zuki and then I would do this and I would do that. And I wrote down like how much time I would like to spend doing all of the things that I consider to be top priorities in my life. And then I totaled up the hours and it was like 39 hours. (laughs) And that did not include sleep (laughs) or or, you know, like any kinds of household errands or anything, any chores, you know, laundry was not part of those. So I kind of laughed at myself, but it was yet another reminder that, you know, as beautiful as it is, my vision for what an ideal day might look like is actually not possible. (laughs) It's not possible to cram all of that into a 24 hour period. And it was a good reality check to kind of go, all right, well, we need to adjust, you know, adjust what you think is possible or adjust, you know, just adjust your vision so that it can fit within the confines of reality. <laughs> yeah, it it's really seems to me, Alex, like we all kind of overestimate how much we think we can do or even overestimate how much we think we want to do. Yeah. And there, there's a, there must be multiple reasons for that, one of which is probably just, just generally maybe <laughs> overestimating our, our abilities or our capacity to do a lot of things. But it also strikes me that obviously there's like some shared value that we, like the, the, the royal we, we place on doing many things and that the assumption that that will fill us up emotionally or spiritually, right? Like there's, we think that there's v- the value in doing many things is that it will make us feel happier or more purposeful or like we have meaning and fulfillment for you. You said that you were as a kid, always kind of feeling overwhelmed, even by how much you had to do. Did you, have you ever connected like what you think you were seeking by trying to do so much or in the case of your sister, just insofar as, you know, we're not gossiping about her. um, But because she's, she features in your book, 
did you and your sister ever talk about what you both or, or each of you was looking for, like emotionally by trying to do so much? Was it just assumed that you had to? Was it because you're both, you know, very high achievers? Why? Why all the busyness? Why so many things? Yeah. What, were you, what do you suppose you were trying to fill in doing all of the things? Ooh, well, isn't that the question? <laughs> That's a big one. I would say probably there's a couple layers to it, but, um, you know, I come from an extremely high achieving family. I, I am so tight with my family, like me, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, my sister-in-law, like we talk every single week. I mean, we are a super, super tight knit family. Um, so I'm not saying this as like a critical thing, but I mean, just to like lay out the facts, my, you know, my mom is a Tony and Grammy award winning producer. My brother is a Grammy nominated artist as well. Um, my dad started his own, was, you know, the first in his family to generate, to graduate from college, the first to start his own, you know, business in LA. He's been a successful attorney his entire career and has worked with like very high caliber clients. He also teaches at UCLA. Um, I could go on and on and on. Like pretty much everyone in my immediate family and even my extended family is like very, very high achieving kind of person. Um, And what's funny is like, it's not that we're necessarily like a workaholic family. Like we definitely love to play. We love to relax. We love to have fun, but there's kind of just like an, an, it, it, I think it felt to me as a child, I don't know if my parents would agree with this, but there was kind of just this unspoken expectation of you can do anything you want with your life, but we're a family who is the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> we do the most, like we, whatever you do, you're going to do it exceptionally well. Um, and so I think that was sort of, I don't know, maybe there was a little anxiety in me as a child of like, well, what's my thing? You know, what's my thing that I'm going to be extraordinary at? Um, Is it writing? Is it something else? And there was sort of an expectation that probably I just placed on myself to be, you know, to be excellent at something. And maybe that's where some of the the drive and the, the busyness and the wanting to like schedule all the things and do all the things comes from. I don't know. That's my hunch. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of that pressure I placed on myself, I don't know that it overtly came from my family. I think it was more just me observing and then putting that pressure on myself. Right. And there, there's so many different influences and it's hard to, to cherry pick or even point out. It's hard to point out like any of the potential influences that shaped our you know, perceptions or values or work ethic or pressures or anxieties because in a way it's like, it's everything and also nothing. Like you can, like it it could be all of the things, but it could also just be like, maybe that's also just who we are. But I always think it's interesting. And I've had the pleasure of meeting your parents and they're, they're absolutely wonderful. I've had the the pleasure of seeing your mom's play, which she produced in champion Hades town on Broadway, um, which you were very kind to take me to. This is, this is last year. And at the time I was you know, I'm not a Broadway guy, as anyone who knows me can will will tell you. And I was expecting to see a play, um, and I was expecting it to be like, you know, pretty good. I was I was excited to be there with you to celebrate your mom's accomplishment. And then I just watched the most devastating and beautiful and exceptional piece of art that I've ever seen. And I remember 
not only feeling like all of the emotions from watching Hades Town on Broadway, uh, this is even before it came out and won eight Tonys, I think, but I remember leaving that performance and being equal parts so motivated to be like, I want to create something so beautiful like that. And then feeling the immediate dread of recognizing at, because I have, and I know you have Alex, not only worked in a creative space, but worked with creatives, the, the dread of acknowledging, but of course I can't just do that. And, and that's not how it works. Like creating miracles of, of art that are like transcendent or when, you know, awards doesn't just happen on an individual level. And I wonder to what extent some of the burden we place on ourselves, whether we're talking you and me, whatever your, your, your mother must have felt in creating and, and producing Hades Town, or anyone who's listening to this, I wonder how much of that comes from, like the overwhelming anxiety come from thinking or assuming that we have to all, we do it all on our own and that it's all on us to make or break our entire lives or a piece of art. And really it's so much more collaborative uh, in reality, right? Like these different things that we put on a pedestal, different forms of art and expressions, even books, we could talk about yours and and what went into it. They're never just individual feats. Um, Do you, have you ever connected that to like how much you put on yourself as you try to create and how have you tried to, if, if so, how have you, how have you tried to balance that out by collaborating with peers or, you know, taking some of the burden off of your shoulders? Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. And I mean, it's funny. I remember going to see the show with you and I very much had the same feeling of like, oh my God, this is such an incredible piece of art. It's so beautiful. And feeling like, just like you, I want to make something this beautiful in my lifetime, whether it's a book or something else, but also like you feeling like, but how? <laughs> how am I, yeah. I going to do that? And I think, um, yeah, you know, a, a Broadway musical or play is a perfect example of how it really does take like a village and the neighboring village and the one next to that to mm. create something of that magnitude. And, it, and also so much of it is just like mystery and serendipity and timing and luck and, I mean, so much hard work, of course, but it's like what goes into creating a show that just just happens to kind of arrive at the moment in history when it does. I mean, there's so so much to it that is like a mystery as well. Um, but okay, so about like collaboration, um, I definitely more and more am realizing that I can create more and of a higher quality when I have a squad, like when I have a team supporting Mm me or or people to collaborate with. Um, I mean, just like a really tiny, tiny example is uh, at the time that we're recording this, this is just a few weeks after George Floyd's uh, death in Minneapolis and all of the, the social justice, you know, movement that has really, reached a higher volume after that. And in the aftermath of all of that, like so many people, I was wondering, you know, what's, what is my role in this revolution and what can I do and how can I help? And, you know, how can I make an impact and, you know, wondering all of those things. And, 
me and my friend and another colleague had this idea to put together like a very, very tiny, tiny little book, maybe like 15 pages long, maybe less, maybe more. And the book would be really simple. It would basically just be a list of small, simple ways that you can stand in solidarity with Black people, with minority people, people of color, and just stand in solidarity and show support and help and fight racism and make a difference. So together, we wrote this list of 30 ways, and it all happened in the span of like a day. Like it was very quick and easy. I mean, not easy, but like it it happened quickly because there were three of us working on it together. And then we reached out to several friends because we wanted um, feedback from people who are not white, obviously, on this book. So we got feedback from, you know, about five or six people, maybe more, implemented their feedback. Um, Then a graphic designer, you know, generously offered to design it for free, did a lovely, simple design and, you know, volunteered her time to do that. And, And within a matter of like five days, it was done. And like, could I have produced that book all by myself? Yeah, but it would have taken a lot longer and it wouldn't have been as good because we needed, you know, diverse viewpoints on that book to make it what we wanted it to be, which was like a a genuinely helpful resource for people who want to get involved and take action and want a few ideas on how to do that. So that was like a lovely example and reminder to me that you don't have to do it all alone. In fact, you probably shouldn't do it all alone. And people want to collaborate, you know, people, we, we all were excited and it felt meaningful to whip that together quickly. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm learning that lesson over and over that I don't have to be a lone wolf when it comes to creating things. Are, are you finding that as well? I feel like you're a great community builder and you always have awesome people around you, but maybe, maybe you feel like a lone wolf sometimes too. Yeah, I, I do. I think I kind of like wax and wane. I go through different stages of being very collaborative or very, you know, independent or autonomous, or if I'm going to put like a, a less self-flattering adjective on it, just being a little bit more isolated. And I think there's maybe there's benefits to both, but I think the pitfall, like the real struggle that I know for myself is that trying to do everything on my own creatively or in work is something I'm actively challenging right now because on the one hand, it can feel like the epitome of freedom to feel like you answer to no one. But on the other hand, I think what we're talking about, Alex, with how, you know, how much of a burden it actually puts on, on a person's shoulders to try to, you know, write a book on one's own. Um, I, I feel like I've, I've experienced more lessons, like the hard earned lessons by doing too much on my own and seeing where like, not, not seeing until after the fact where I made mistakes or where I could have, I needed help. I, uh, I think the, the prime example of that is when I wrote and self-published my first book, how, how much pressure I put on myself for that book to be like exceptional. And it's like, because I put that pressure on myself for it to be exceptional, I almost blocked out like humbling myself or acknowledging that I couldn't possibly make it a best-selling book on my first try. Right. And as a result, I, I kind of 
unconsciously neglected bringing more people into my process to help me. So it's almost like I unconsciously walled off people because I was trying to do too much on my own, which I think ties nicely into what we're talking about here. Um, the benefits of a, a collaborative creative process. I think the further that I go, Alex, to answer your question, the more I fundamentally understand that it, like great art or any like social missions, they don't happen individually and they're not supposed to happen individually. They, they are supposed to be products of us as social creatures coming together and, and playing off of our differences, right. And having more viewpoints and perspectives and stories at the table. So it doesn't become an echo chamber. It doesn't become just another homogenous point of view that just reinforces the same old thing. So I'm seeing more value in being collaborative. When it comes to the work that you do, Alex, it seems to me like that the book uh, in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter movement really being amplified to a higher volume, like you said beautifully, on a global level, you came together with some people and you made, uh, I think you said it was about a 15-page book. I have always perceived you to be quite a prolific maker, a maker of things. You know, you have this, I think this book, if, if it, um, this book that we're talking about here, the 15 page book will, will be, you know, whether you counted in your books and you've, you've written and published six, this would def- effectively be your seventh. You are a maker of many things, audiobooks and small books and tiny books. Like you say, your instinct seems to be when you feel called to do something, to take action, to make a thing. Has that always been the case for you? And not only with regard to like making books, but, you know, obviously like making checklists, the subject of your most recent book, making things seems to be like how you go from idea to like doing. And I think for a lot of people, for a lot of creatives, the ideas can kind of get stuck in like the liminal space, like in our heads uh, or in the idea phase. How do you, so two questions. One, do you consider yourself to be a maker in the sense that I'm kind of describing? And two, how do you find your creative process to move from like from the idea stage to making? Do you find it overwhelming or daunting or, or is that why, um, I'm asking so many questions here, but I'm excited. Um, (laughs) so let's start with those. Let's start with those. Do you consider yourself a maker and, um, how do you move from like idea to making as you seem to do rather fluidly? Yeah. Okay. So do I consider myself a maker? It's funny. Like that's not a word I've, I don't think I've ever used to describe myself, but actually it is a good description because I, I mean, I do, I do make things that I make. Um, I love to make things. I think I always have. And whether it's, you know, a season of a podcast or a paperback or hardcover book or a tiny, you know, wee little digital book or a class and experience, like I love making things. And I, yeah, you know, I, I think I, I most would consider me to be fairly prolific. There is, there's always that voice, of course, in the back of my head saying, but you could do so much more. <laughs> like, um, but I, I think I am fairly prolific. And one, one thing, though, that is very uh, consistent about how I approach making things is I'm, I'm always, I love a tiny project and I love mm. tiny, simple things. And I think that 
you know, we all have like our superpowers, like things that just come so naturally to us, whether it's, you know, making spaces beautiful or empathy or healing or whatever. And I I think really my superpower is simplifying. I think Mm -hmm. I have for whatever reason, like I love, you know, talking to people and having them share with me their big ambitious dream and, and all of, you know, all of the layers to it. And then just kind of going, okay, let's strip it down. You know, let's make a checklist. Let's make it simple. What's the simplest version of this dream to get started? Um, And so as a result of that, I think I am able to make things and actually finish things and release them into the world pretty regularly and pretty quickly because I keep it tiny and I keep it simple. Like, you know, with this, this tiny book that my colleagues and I co-wrote recently, you know, we were not intending to write a 300 page history of racism and oppression in America with essays from 85 people and, you know, a million other things like that book very much needs to exist and does exist. And that's an important book, but that's not the book we were trying to write. Like we were trying to write a very simple, actionable, 30 things you can do right now guide, which is important too. You know, like I I feel like the world needs that too. The world needs the big book and the tiny book and everything in between. Um, And I tend to veer more on the tiny book (laughs) and the spectrum Um, because I just love simplicity and I love tiny things. And I love, I love being able to like, you know what it is? I am rambling now, but I, I love the experience of, having an idea, getting it on paper and like being done, like feeling like it's finished right. within a week or less. There's something mm-hmm. about that that just feels so satisfying to me and I like crave it. And I think that's, that's how I tend to make things most of the time. I really appreciate how you have that magic power for simplifying something down to its essence. And I think that's what I really appreciate about how you do make things because simplicity is really is, is ironically very complex and challenging. Um, I think there's a, there's a quote that goes around. I think it's attributed to Hemingway. Don't, I haven't fact checked this, but um, in which he or someone said, I didn't have the time to write you a short letter. So I'm writing you a long one instead. Yes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So like meaning like it is easier to just like go longer or to like try to do this really ties into what we've been talking about, like trying to put too many ideas into a book um, or trying to do too much all at once. It, 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 it's easier in the sense that when you don't think about the impact, the income or the container that you're trying to create for you and for your friends, making, making this tiny book, I mean, you didn't just start to write a book and say, like, what is this book about? It seems like you had really clear intentions about what it was going to be, set what we call a firm container around yeah. which sets your expectations. And that's what helped you complete it. And and it is actually challenging. I think it takes more discipline. Maybe you can tell me. Do you find that it's just about when you make a, a, a clear, tiny, simple project, is it more of a discipline to stay within the container that you set or is it that the discipline comes from getting clear about why you're doing it at all? Do you, do you find that there's a challenge there or something that you've learned and maybe in a way mastered over, you know, doing so many different tiny, tiny books, tiny projects, what would you say is like the secret sauce to 
making something simple and clear rather than something that, you know, might tend to get overwhelmed or, or overly complex. Yes, I would say set your intention. And then, you know, if whatever that intention is, you just have to commit to it, right? You have to commit and say, this is the tiny book, or this is the book, or this is the art project that I'm making. I decided this is the container, as you put it, and I'm just going to stick with that and not start overcomplicating it as you go along. Um, but I think starting with that clear container from the beginning makes such a difference. Like I was, I'm, I'm actually in the midst of um, running a tiny book writing class right now. And one of mm. my favorite parts of the class is towards the beginning when everyone, you know, and most people come into the class with some kind of book idea or at least a topic that they would like to write about. <clears throat> and it's really fun to take that topic, which can sometimes feel very big and, and sort of unwieldy and create that clear container. Like, for example, there was one woman in the course who has been a PhD researcher and she's been researching how um, misogyny shows up in the workplace in her home country. Obviously, misogyny in the workplace is a massive topic that you could write, you know, 5,000 pages on and beyond. Like you could write about that topic until the end of time. So, you know, we created a nice container, which was, okay, so she's going to write about misogyny in the workplace, specifically in her tiny book, which is going to be 30 pages or less. She's going to cover, you know, five of the main issues that she's observed for each one. She's going to share a personal story and then after that personal story, she's going to share a few pieces of guidance or suggestions for the reader. Kind of like if you find yourself in this situation, here's what I advise you to do. So five issues, story for each, few pieces of advice, 30 pages or less. Mm. You know, and, and once that structure was in place and she felt committed to it, now it's like this massive topic doesn't feel quite so crushingly overwhelming. She, she knows like, I don't have to say everything about this topic in this one tiny book. I'm just going to address these five things. And, you know, many, many people talk about how having a bit of structure actually makes you feel more free. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that's very true. And that, that's definitely how I approach pretty much all of my projects. I always love to start with the intention, the outline, the container, and then commit to it and not start to like second guess it, which I think is very common. Um, once you get into the writing process, it's tempting to be like, well, wait a minute, I should also say this. And I should also say that. And before you know it, your nice simple container has sort of ballooned into something, a monstrosity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's making a lot more sense now. I think I'm understanding even more now, Alex, how your process of creating checklists kind of emulates that same container setting for your idea of a, of a given day of life, right? Or a work day, uh, much like it does setting the container of like 30 pages or less, five topics or fewer, one story in each. It's almost like the container that you set in your tiny book workshop helps somebody to actually feel more, like you said, liberated in what they get to say rather than being overwhelmed by it. It kind of like the image that comes to mind you know, a lot of, a lot of writers and creatives deal with the experience of being overwhelmed by possibility and potential. And so setting a container actually gives you some like guardrails or 
more, um, it defines the lines in which you can start to actually create and make something and grow. And the image that comes to mind is like, if somebody is intent on starting a garden, but they don't know the size of the garden or what time of year it is or what the growing season's like, and they're just trying to shop for seeds, they, they, they don't know where to go with it, right? But if you know you have a certain size bed and it's early spring, like the, the details, the circumstances or the container that's set seems to be what helps to fuel that or contain the creative process without restricting it. And that's my next question for you, Alex, which is, you know, there's, there's a kind of a trope or a crutch that goes around in creative circles whereby people say they don't want to lose the magic of creativity, you know, of flow or stumbling into something amazing by putting constraints on it or over planning or, you know, like almost like overthinking the, the plan of it. What do you usually say to someone who feels resistant to creating a plan or a tight container with regards to their creativity? Do you identify it as kind of like a self-protection thing, uh, a shadow or self-limiting belief thing? Is it, is it the romance of writing and creativity that needs to be gut checked a little bit? What do you, what, when that, have you ever had that, resistance come up in a room or a virtual room when you're teaching online and what do you usually, you know, say in response to it? Yeah, I have heard that. And, um, I think it, it relates to planning a creative project. I think it connects back to checklists. So when I shared with some people that I, you know, back when I was writing the checklist book, like I'm writing a book about checklists, I could see as soon as I said the word checklist, some people's eyes would light up and I would know like, aha, you're one of us. <laughs> and then <laughs> other people would sort of, you know, kind of smile, but kind of jokingly groan and say like, you know, something to the effect of like, like I'm just not a checklist person or like, you know, mm. that sounds way too uptight for me <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Or like, you know, someone like my mom, who's very free spirited, even though she's also extremely accomplished you know, she, to this day, she makes fun of me and my checklist obsession in a loving way. And is sort of like, you know, when are you going to just loosen up and stop making all those checklists? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is that I, the way I view it anyway, is when I make a checklist to plan my day, it is not like a military, you know, hour by hour, rigid plan for the day at all. It's really just me setting an intention for my day in a specific way. And, and this might sound crazy, but like if I want to have a part of my day that's like, you know, taking a walk without my phone and daydreaming and looking at the sky, I will literally put take a walk without your phone, daydream and look at the sky on my checklist. Yeah. And that might sound so counterintuitive, but to me, it's not because it's me saying, I want this experience to happen. I don't want to forget. I don't want to run out of time. It's important to me. So I'm going to put it on my checklist so that it feels real and that I, I am likely to actually do it. So in, in the same way, like I think you can create a plan for your day that is intentional and specific, but also leaves room for spontaneity and wildness and magic and serendipity and all those things. And similarly, I think you can create a plan for a creative project that is 
clear and simple and intentional and specific, but also leaves room, you know, Mm -hmm. like you can say, I want to begin chapter one by sharing an inspirational story. Maybe you don't know what that story is yet. You know, you'll figure it out in the magic of the process, but just setting the intention that I want to begin with a story is enough. You know, it's kind of like a, it's like a light structure, just enough structure that you have a little bit of creative constraint. You have a container to play in, but not so much structure that it feels suffocating. That's kind of how I tend to approach things. Would you be willing to read uh, your what's on your checklist or some of what's on your checklist for today? Presumably you have one for today or recently. Would you be willing to share? Oh, yes. It's right in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't doubt that they would be there. <laughs> All right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So uh, checklist for Friday. We're recording this on a Friday. So at the top of my daily checklist, I always put some kind of statement that just kind of represents like how I want to feel or like my general focus for the day. Um, So I put today, expand, make million dollar decisions. Uh, And that that phrase, million dollar decisions, I comes from my colleague and friend, Rachel Rogers, who is always talking about how you need to make million dollar decisions, which is not just about finances. It's more like make decisions that make you feel rich, emotionally rich, spiritually rich, and also financially rich. So then under the category of good morning, (laughs) we have (laughs) first checklist item, drink a big glass of water, have coffee and gaze at the ocean, put on a cute outfit, more coffee, (laughs) and and I by the way I've checked all of those off (laughs) that's good um under the category of work time podcast recording with Dave that's you and I also put a little note uh about what I was going to read on the podcast then under work time I have a couple of just work-related tasks I'm I need to send a quote to this one client. I need to write a couple of pieces for another client, um, et cetera, et cetera. Send something to my proofreader. Just, you know, a few like work-related tasks. And then I also put on my checklist for today, do not look at your emails. Focus Mm. on writing. So sometimes I put on my checklist something that I don't want to do to sort of remind myself, don't do that. And then I check it off to indicate, ah, yes, I remembered. (laughs) And that really helps me. Um, And then under the category of mental and physical health, we're almost done. Don't worry. Uh, Therapy. I have therapy today, and I'm going to talk to my therapist on the phone while I take my dog Zuki for a walk, kind of like a walk and talk. I put eat some plants, listen to energizing music. Peloton ride. I recently got a Peloton because I'm very bourgeois now. So that's another story. Um, I put sex on my checklist. And I also put do something that brings you joy. Hopefully that will be the sex. They could be the same. Maybe that's a double check mark for <laughs> one can only hope. One can only hope. Well, I really like that your checklist, Alex. Like we, we've talked a lot in this conversation about not only checklists, which is the subject of your book, but 
more broadly about like setting containers. And that's a word that gets bandied about a lot in like yoga, mindfulness, spirit, like pseudo spiritual pop culture today. But I think what I'm taking from this conversation is that the beauty of setting containers, you know, for yourself are that there's nothing, there's, when you set a container, there's nothing necessarily constrictive about it. You can bring into any set container as you do, like humor and joy and reminders and inspiration. So it's not constrictive or just about things that you have to do out of obligation, which I think we all kind of relate to as like what a checklist maybe used to represent or even still does represent when we think about remembering the things that we need to do in our overwhelmed or over anxious days. But I see you reclaiming the checklist as a way to set container, a container for yourself and through which we all can try for ourselves. And maybe by the end of this podcast, people will make their own checklist for themselves to help keep us in the spaces that we want to be living in, not the ones that we're overwhelmed by necessarily, or because we're taking on too much and overburdening ourselves with busyness, but to remind ourselves and to keep ourselves accountable to living in the ways that we really want to be living, working in the ways we want to be working and overall kind of, kind of living well um, in accord to how we think we, we want to live. And that's a, it's a pretty rad thing. And I, can't say that I've ever thought about a checklist in such a way until I met you. And I'm really grateful for your perspective. Yes. Thank you. And you're, you're totally right. I love how you phrase that, like making a checklist or making a plan. It doesn't have to be about rigidity and suffocation. Like it, it really is just kind of putting into words, putting in writing this is my vision. This is my vision for the day. This is my vision for my book, for my project. You know, things might change a little bit as we get into it because sometimes life is full of surprises, but like, this is how I want to live. This is what I want my day to look like. This is the experiences that are important to me and so important that I'm actually going to write them down and commit to them. And to me, that's what making a checklist is all about. Alex Franzen, thank you so much for joining us. I delight in this conversation and I wish you many, many check marks on your checklist. <laughs> many, <laughs> it, and a many check mark day to you. And too. a many check mark to you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. You can always find us at thenewstory.is, including our full back catalog of interviews from throughout the year. Leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts, especially to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It goes a long way in helping us find and share our work with new listeners. Until soon, dear listener, keep storying on. We'll speak to you soon. Bye for now.